From coast to coast to coast. You're listening. 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 To Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Amanda Rudy. And I'm Carter Gorzitza. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM and is produced in Miskwachi, the historic and present territory of the Cree, Nakota Sioux, and many other First Peoples, many of whom are on the front lines of land and water protection throughout Treaty 6 territory. This week, we're going to be exploring, imagining, and working through what a Green New Deal means and might look like. But first, Here's a recap of what's been happening locally regarding a Green New Deal, and of course, some good old Alberta politics. In 2019, over 150 town halls were held across Canada with the goal of deliberating on what a Green New Deal might look like in their respective cities across Canada. In June 2019, Edmonton's town hall on a Green New Deal drew a crowd of around 250 people. Attention around a Green New Deal has clearly been increasing. Just this April, a Calgary 660 news reporter asked Alberta Premier Jason Kenney if in the face of plummeting oil prices and the global pandemic, the province might consider engaging in discussions around a Green New Deal. Mr. Kenney appeared to be flustered at the question and cemented his commitment to funneling provincial recovery funds into the oil and gas industry in areas such as the Keystone XL pipeline. This all comes at a time when Norway's biggest pension fund, KLP, has disinvested from four Canadian oil companies, Synovus Energy, Suncor Energy, Husky Energy, and Imperial Oil. This divestment sends a strong message that future energy systems must do better. KLP dropped the stocks after their internal ethics council concluded that the greenhouse gas emissions from the aforementioned companies were unacceptably high and that it is shifting its portfolio to adjust for changing global attitudes and as well to mitigate risk. Alberta's energy minister condemned this move, calling it highly hypocritical. The Canadian Energy Centre, also known as Alberta's Energy War Room, pointed out in a fact sheet that Norway is also developing its own resources. What Alberta officials failed to identify are the low emissions intensity per barrel of oil coming out of Norway. Alberta oil sands rack up between 39 to 127 kilograms of CO2 per barrel, while Norway's oil averages around 9 kilograms per barrel due to the fact that it's lighter and requires less processing than much of Alberta's oil. But we're not here to discuss the technical details of the feasibility of lowering the greenhouse gas production per unit of oil in Alberta. We are here to consider the wisdom of pinning our province's future on a resource that global leaders, even in the corporate sector, have identified as too high risk to invest in. What we're here to ask is, what's the deal with a Green New Deal? We talked to a couple different folks about this. We had the opportunity to attend the 2019 Parkland Institute Conference in November, where we got to chat with Damon Drummer, who is a civic innovator whose work in Chicago has been recognized by many large institutions and is currently the co-founder and executive director of New Consensus, a leading organization with an economic focus on shaping the Green New Deal in the United States. Desmond presented at the conference discussing the topic of a Green New Deal.
when we talk about a Green New Deal, so again, the Green New Deal sounds final, right? Uh, when we talk about a Green New Deal, um, I think it opens the floor for a discussion. The Green New Deal sounds like legislation. A Green New Deal sounds like a conversation. And I'm very interested in having a conversation around what does it mean to reshape our economy to work for everyone, where 90% of the gains don't go to the top 1% or so of our economy. Um, a Green New Deal opens a question for what world do we want to live in? Uh, what is the social contract uh, today? Can we update the operating system of the US away from one that is built on slave owner math, right? Uh, we wonder why Trump got elected while losing the popular vote, right? So a Green New Deal uh, is uh, a space for imagining, uh, and it's a space for ideas. And so I would like to call this presentation the promise of a uh, Green New Deal. We also spoke with Emma Jackson, an organizer with Climate Justice Edmonton and 350 Canada, who is doing on-the-ground Green New Deal organizing right here in Alberta. The Green New Deal is a plan to radically transform our economy in line with what uh, both climate science and justice demands. And so it means tackling the climate crisis at the scale and speed that scientists are telling us that we have to, um, while fundamentally transforming the way that our society operates. So we know that there's a very small corporate elite around the world, something like eight billionaires that own more wealth than um, the, body, the bottom 50%. And so it's about um, a radical redistribution of wealth and power in our society and in our economy um, in a way that upholds indigenous rights, um, creates millions of good jobs, and enshrines dignity and justice for all while tackling the climate crisis. Before we dive too deep into our modern context and the Green New Deal, we'll briefly overview the original New Deal, which is the namesake policy effort that has in some ways inspired the Green New Deal. The story of the New Deal begins on October 29, 1929, in the United States of America. The 1920s were a period of significant economic growth in the United States, a time period sometimes referred to as the Roaring Twenties. This period resulted in rapid growth of the stock market and the emergence of business icons like Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and of course, Jay Gatsby. This all came to a crashing halt on the aforementioned October 29th, a day that has gone down in history as Black Tuesday. As the speculation bubble burst, millions of stocks were sold in a day crashing the stock market and resulting in a, the loss of millions and a large economic downturn. Welcome to the Great Depression and the Dirty Thirties. The president at this time is Herbert Hoover, a staunch free market and deregulation supporter. Hoover relied on his beliefs to guide his response to the depression, which was to do very little and to wait for the economy to resolve the issue itself. The depression continued to worsen for the next several years. The unemployment rate rose to 25%, and in 1933, the American public was ready for a different response to this crisis. This resulted in the election of Franklin D. Roosevelt in a landslide election. With much enthusiasm to tackle the Great Depression, in his inaugural address, 
Franklin D. Roosevelt attempted to rally the American people with the now famous words, quote unquote, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. For the next eight years, Roosevelt would launch a series of programs that were intended to restart the economy. This included the Tennessee Valley Authority, which allowed for the construction of dams along the Tennessee River, the Work Progress Administration, which funded infrastructure development and artistic content, and the National Recovery Act, which set minimum wages, working conditions, and encouraged unionization. Roosevelt's policies embodied something called Keynesian economics, based on the economist John Maynard Keynes. This theory suggests that in times of economic downturn, the government should approve public projects, increase funding and government employment, and reduce interest rates to put more money into the economy. The New Deal policies rolled out in two waves, the second one rolling out in 1935, likely contributing to Roosevelt's re-election in 1936. Despite challenges by the conservative-dominated Supreme Court and the critiques of government overreach, Roosevelt was able to push many of these policies through. The New Deal appears to have been somewhat successful. The economy saw slow growth through the 1930s. However, Roosevelt placed great emphasis on social goals and values. The New Deal emphasized improving working conditions and encouraging unionization. Some of the social supports included in the New Deal remain in place to this day, such as social security and unemployment insurance. Despite this focus on social values, ultimately the New Deal was a capitalist endeavor to increase economic growth and consumption. The Great Depression would be well and truly ended in 1941 when the Japanese army bombed Pearl Harbor, entering the United States into the Second World War, where the demand for war material bolstered the economy substantially. Notably, the eight years of the New Deal policy increased the national debt by $3 billion. The war effort increased the national debt by nearly 20-fold. The New Deal was a progressive economic policy that helped the U.S. through an economic crisis. The Green New Deal hopes to do the same in the face of the climate crisis. It's understandable to see why some people think it's time for a Green New Deal. The conditions right now don't actually seem very different from the 1930s. There's a growing crisis, a government that is somewhat inactive in their response, and a public that is increasingly calling for change. Yet many things are radically different. We're not proposing another New Deal. Our metaphor is a different episode in American history, but people know what the New Deal is, and it means something in the American political imagination, and so we had to roll with it. But our controversy with the New Deal was that it was inherently racist. It explicitly cut out women, it explicitly cut out black people, it explicitly cut out Latinx people and just go down the line. It literally built public projects on indigenous lands. It was a terrible, terrible thing, if you really look at it. Uh, our Katz Nelson has this amazing book uh, called uh, Fear Itself. And, you know, in the book he proposes that the New Deal is the American landscape that has been painted over and over again. Uh, what new could be said about the New Deal? And what he saw, among other things, that were underappreciated in the history of the New Deal was that the idea of race uh, had been underreported, right, and not really explored as deeply as it should have been. And so our I think one Nelson of the reasons why is that the imaginary around say that the further south you went, 
right? The less you saw the economic impacts of the New Deal. Look at Mississippi. Look at where one of my good friends lives, Alabama, right? Uh, you see how that works. The more you saw the nationalization of the Jim Crow racist, segregationist, white supremacist regime. Look at Chicago, where I live, where you have the black belt and redlining that's still going on, right? And so the New Deal nationalized Jim Crow, <laughs> right? Uh, and isolated black people, Latinx people. Again, farm workers weren't protected. So the New Deal was deeply problematic. But the good news is that in calling this thing the Green New Deal, it forces us to contend and reckon with that history, to reckon with this idea that policy does shape outcomes, that you have the hood precisely because of the New Deal, and the fact that home loans weren't guaranteed to black people where black people lived. That is why even to this day, housing prices grow slower in black areas than they do everywhere else. In Chicago, we have black folks living unnaturally on the lakefront, right? And housing prices and real estate prices were depressed on the southern part of Chicago's lakefront because black people were there. That is because of a racist financial system, but it also has its roots in federal policy and who got loans that were guaranteed, right, by uh, the federal government. And those are the types of conversations that we can now have anew and talk about why it matters that we structure the Green New Deal in a way that is preemptively inclusive, that prioritizes those who have been actively cut out of the prosperity of uh, the country. While these large systemic changes have been inspiring to many, it has left others with apprehensions, questions, and concerns. Some of these range from how will it be paid for? At what scale would these changes occur? And is this idea another example of an American import to Canada? I think a common apprehension that comes at least in Canada is oftentimes I think people talk about the Green New Deal as like a very American um, policy prescription or like an American plan. And I think that's not true. And a lot of the ideas that, that inform the Green New Deal came from the global south. There was a lot of talk about the concept of needing to radically transform the economy in line with climate science that were coming from countries all around the world. UK was really talking about, um, I think a lot of the concepts beforehand as well. And then, you know, in Canada with the LEAP Manifesto, I do think that that started to sort of lay the foundation, at least in terms of thinking more broadly about um, valuing low carbon sectors of our economy. You know, we have to remind ourselves that the debt question, and this is a very valid, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great question, but the debt argument uh, is a, it's a red herring. Uh, it is a priority that emphasizes austerity and cutting public budgets, right? Which means you can, you can cut taxes, which means you're cutting more public budgets. Um, it, the focus on debt is a strategy uh, for austerity um, and making government as small as possible. It is a neoliberal frame uh, because we all know that in times of economic crisis, public spending is what boosts the economy. Uh, this whole debt conversation um, really betrays the fundamental role that the public sector plays in shaping the economy. Uh, and so, you know, this idea that 
public borrowing crowds out, private borrowing is not real. And paying down the national uh, debt or state debt does not have substantive impacts on the economy, right? And if anything, it's a preoccupation with financial markets. And that's a whole nother conversation, right? Uh, so it kind of goes into the financialization of like kind of political discourse or financialization of like economic uh, and, and business uh, life. Um, so it, it's not, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it should be seen as what it is. It's a strategy to make government as small as possible when indeed public spending is what helps stimulate the economy, right? And that, that's just what it is. I don't have any other yeah. artful ways to say it. People can make this argument a lot better. Uh, we can go into the details, but that's just what it is. Um, the interesting thing is that the how to pay for it question, particularly at the federal level, um, is also a distracting question, right? How do we pay for fossil fuel subsidies, right? How do we pay for tax cuts, right? All of this stuff, um, we don't ask these questions for. How do we pay for war? Nobody asks these questions, but now when we're trying to transition the economy to something clean, renewable for the sake of human survival and trying to pay people more, you know, we start talking about how to pay for it. It's like kind of increasing wages. Well, won't people go out of business? It's like, well, won't people buy more? And won't there be more business, right? Uh, because there's more consumption. Um, it's, it's funny how there are actors and institutions that have as their mission, making government as small and irrelevant as possible so that corporate power, right, can reign supreme. And we all know the state, the government, is the countervailing force to corporate power. And this focus on debt uh, just allows and perpetuates corporate capture of our democracy <laughs> um, and makes it so that we have this anemic public sector that is completely incapable and gutted uh, in serving the interests of the public. And uh, that is what the debt argument is all about, making government as small and irrelevant as possible uh, so that large corporations can just have their day and not pay workers. So it just comes down to that. Like Jackson and Drummer have said, the conversation around a Green New Deal does not prescribe many concrete policy points. In many ways, because responses to Green New Deal ideas will be variable depending on each context. Something that people sort of always ask for is they say, okay, but what are the what are the policies? Like give me a list, hand me a list of every single policy that would be part of a Green New Deal. And the reality is like that's that's not possible. It's not what it is. It's not a single policy. It's you know it means transforming elements of our legal system. It means transforming um, really broad swaths of, of how things currently operate. And you know, it makes sense that people are looking for clarity, but what the Green New Deal actually looks like in particular contexts needs to be crafted and developed by those who are going to be most impacted. And so um, we don't want this top-down approach where policymakers say, okay, so here's everything that's in a Green New Deal. And instead it needs to be informed uh, by people on the ground. And so that process, I think, is still very much ongoing. And I, I think that there's like a beauty to that in terms of thinking about like, we need to bring the right people to the table who can help inform what a Green New Deal would look like in their community um, and what they want to see tackling the climate crisis and economic inequality look like. I think another apprehension that uh, I think is like very, very valid and that we need to contend with 
is what it means in the context of a global economy. What does it mean in terms of um, you know, US and Canadian imperialism? What does it mean to be transitioning to renewable energy and a 100% renewable energy economy without um, really deepening existing inequalities around the world? And so depending on the global south, for instance, uh, to mine uh, like minerals and chemicals and all of this that are needed uh, for 100% renewable energy. And what does it mean to do that in a way that doesn't uh, enshrine these same inequalities and, and deepen them and instead like brings justice at a global level? We can't build these economic plans in silos, in like national silos. And so um, the climate crisis is global in scope. And so it requires a really coordinated response. And I think fundamentally, it's about recognizing the fact that the global north is really responsible for the scale and scope of the climate crisis that we're in, and that global south countries are those that are disproportionately bearing the consequences and that they have been for a long time through colonialism, through imperialism. I think at its, at its foundation, like a global Green New Deal is about, about seeing the ways that capitalism operates at a global scale and ensuring that the costs of mitigating climate change, I guess, especially are not disproportionately falling on countries that have been like historically oppressed over time. So yeah, the, the Green New Deal is more than a climate strategy, it's more than a climate intervention. It is a reimagining, a reshaping, a refiguring of, I would argue the American economy, but I think a Green New Deal in anywhere has to rethink how the economy is structured. Right now we have an economy uh, that is structured through law and policy and regulation to favor those who already have a lot. But we all know the majority of growth goes to the 1%. That doesn't happen naturally. It doesn't happen organically. It doesn't happen accidentally. It happens because law and policy determines that outcome, right? So the Green New Deal is about changing that outcome at the appropriate level. Right? It's solving these financial crises and these economic crises. We're talking about unemployment. Communities that have suffered tremendously are in permanent recession. Right, Communities all across the country. Racial groups in permanent recession. Also geographic groups and communities in permanent recession. All of this is by design. And the Green New Deal is about redesigning that framework. So what does it mean to reinstitute in some cases laws that have been expired or removed off the books that can put the growth back into the pockets of the people who made that growth happen, the workers, right? Uh, what does it mean to actually have regulations that uh, and laws that limit the flow, or not limit, but constrain the flow of capital throughout the economy um, so that it's not captured by just the 1%. Uh, some of these laws were on the books and were removed off the books, right? And so some cases is revisiting some old things that worked. In other cases is taking what we know now and making um, new things better. Uh, so that's what it comes down to is about reshaping the economy. There is no way, and it's also politically savvy because there is no way to make a transition, which, you know, isn't gonna be easy, right? There's no way to like make the case for that without saying you're gonna have more income at the end of the day on the way there and once we get there more income for workers. And that is, you can, that can, we have a saying in Texas, that dog will hunt anywhere, right? And that's what we're hanging our hat on. Uh, and we know the jobs um, uh, argument that, you know, the Green New Deal is a job killer and stuff. Uh, these are just false arguments, 
right? There is more work that needs to be done uh, than is currently being done. And that work we believe can be well compensated, right, uh, by design. Uh, so that's how we believe it can reshape the economy. It's um, curbing corporate control and corporate capture of our democracy, uh, valuing work again. I don't even wanna say again, valuing work, right? And making sure that people have a means of making a living and sustaining their family and have a robust and, and, and high quality of life. Universal family care, right? Having a paid vacation, uh, healthcare, all of this stuff. Um, this is what we're fighting for and this is how we can reshape the economy and society uh, in a way that can um, address the, the threefold crisis. We have an economic crisis, a climate crisis, and a social political crisis. Uh, and uh, these are all interrelated. I mean, I think for me, one of the biggest, like most exciting things about the Green New Deal is really how grounded it is in this concept that we need to invest heavily in already low carbon sectors of our economy. And so that, that largely means care work. It means investing in sectors of the economy that disproportionately employ women and especially racialized women. And so I think we're seeing this with COVID right now of, of thinking about like, are we bringing long-term care into the public sector? How are we investing um, heavily into, into healthcare, into education, into seniors care? Um, so those are pieces I think that are that are really exciting, at least to me personally. Thinking about universal childcare, for instance, as part of a Green New Deal, um, and how that sort of reorientation of our values actually will disproportionately benefit people who I think have been left behind. Um, for far too long and so I think there's a tendency a lot and maybe people do this because they want want everything to sound as like palatable as possible where uh, people often talk about like a, a transition for oil and gas workers so that's the focus that they think about when they think about a green new deal and they think about you know we need to move oil and gas workers from one energy sector to another um, laying pipelines versus you know, starting to install wind, tur wind turbines and solar energy and, and whatnot. I think while that's part of it, the more exciting elements to me are like thinking about, yeah, this investment in care work, also this reorientation around like public luxuries versus like individual goods. And so I think that's where we get into like free, accessible, like incredible <laughs> transit, for instance, as like, they're public luxuries, but about um, thinking through how community centers and community gardens and um, you know urban agriculture and all of that could operate as well. And so I think those are those are aspects that are really exciting. I think it's also really cool, especially right now. Like there are ways where we're starting to see these starting grounds that are like very easy ways that could move us towards what we're talking about when we're talking about a Green New Deal. And so like, I'm thinking for instance about um, Canadian Union of Postal Workers that like put out a plan to say, let's electrify our entire fleet of vehicles. Let's use Canada post offices um, as charging stations. Let's do postal banking. Um, another really great example is like the Oshawa, uh, the GM plant in Oshawa that has said like, we wanna be making electric buses. We wanna be um these factories in order to help create you know um the transit of the future and so i think that there's like 
very real on the ground things that could be done right now, especially when we're talking about green stimulus plans uh, to help address COVID. Like there are elements of a Green New Deal that I think are like already all around us and that could start to be implemented um, very soon. Yeah, but I would encourage folks, um, definitely people who are based in Alberta to look up Climate Justice Edmonton um, on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, there's a just recovery call that's coming up on June 4th, depending on, I don't know when this episode is coming out. Um, and besides that, there's national level organizing that's happening around a just recovery in order to lay a foundation for the Green New Deal. And so um, you can check out 350 Canada, um, there's a coalition that will be launching um, principles of a just recovery very soon um, and get involved that way as well. That's all we have for this week's episode. Terraforma is a volunteer-run production of CJSR 88.5 in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. Big thanks for the third week in a row to Charlotte Thomason, who interviewed Drummer at the Parkland Conference. And also a big thank you to Sonic Patel, who compiled lots of information on the original New Deal and gave us some good scripting advice. We've been your hosts, Carter Grazitza. And Amanda Rooney. Catch you next week on Terra Informa.